0: Welcome to this podcast from the Faculty of Health and Social Care at Anglia Ruskin University. My name is Dr. Leslie Gelling and I am a Senior Research Fellow in the Faculty. I have a particular interest in research ethics and I chair an NHS Research Ethics Committee and the Faculty's Research Ethics Panel. During this podcast, which is intended for students of this university, I will talk you through some of the important things you need to know about research ethics approvals in the NHS, in this university, and elsewhere. During this podcast, it will only be possible to touch on some of the key issues and you should seek further advice and support when preparing an application for ethical approval in the first instance from your academic supervisor. Before I talk about the various approvals processes, I want to briefly speak about how we've got to where we are today and why ethical review by research ethics committees is so important. Consideration of research ethics and the ethical imperative to protect research participants from harm is not a new concern. There has been mention of research ethics throughout the ages including Hippocrates 500 years before the birth of Christ, Gallen in the second century, Andreas Vesalius in the 1500s and Sir Francis Bacon and Sir William Harvey in the 1600s. At various points in history serious consideration was given to the need to consider research ethics and the notion that participants in research should only participate if they have willingly agreed to do so. In the early 20th century, well-publicised instances of unethical research resulted in the 1900 Prussian Directive and the 1931 Directive from the Russian Reich Minister of the Interior. They both focused on the need to ensure that researchers sought and obtained consent before exposing individuals to research experiments. Despite these directives, there continued to be examples of unethical research resulting in harm to research participants. It is rather ironic that events that stand out as landmarks in the history of research ethics were the numerous atrocities that happened in Nazi Germany in the name of medical science, up until 1945. Immediately prior to the Second World War, this area of Europe had started to place particular emphasis on the need for research to be undertaken, with due regard for the protection of research participants. Such requirements seem to have disappeared for a period in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Events occurring in Nazi Germany have been well documented, so I will not dwell on them here. Following the end of the war, the medical trials at Nuremberg found 15 of the 23 defendants guilty of crimes against humanity, and 7 were executed on the 2 June 1948. As a direct result of the events recounted during the trial, the Nuremberg Code was published, becoming the first authoritative and stringent pronouncement on the rights of human participants involved in research, and was adopted by the World Medical Association. Written by lawyers, the code contained ten principles, with which researchers were expected to adhere. The first, and the most important principle, emphasised the need to ensure that research participants freely give informed consent to their involvement in research. The purpose of the code was to try and ensure that the events that happened in Nazi Germany could not happen again. The Nuremberg Code was adopted around the world but its stringent requirements made it difficult to undertake some forms of medical research so in 1964 the World Medical Association published the Declaration of Helsinki. Unlike the Nuremberg Code The Declaration of Helsinki was written by doctors and has subsequently undergone a number of revisions, most recently following the World Medical Association's meeting in Seoul in 2008. The Declaration remains the key ethical guidance, underpinning the work of all researchers involving human participants in their work. It is the bedrock of good clinical practice and ethical conduct in all forms of research. Despite the Nuremberg Code and the Declaration of Helsinki, there continued to be examples of unethical research. In 1966, Dr Henry Beecher published a paper in the USA in which he described examples of research presenting risks to research participants without informed consent, a clear violation of the Declaration of Helsinki. Such violations were not limited to the USA, and in the following year, Maurice Papworth published a similar paper in which he described 500 examples of unethical research happening in the UK. Both these papers demonstrated the inability of codes or declarations to halt unethical research, a theme that has persisted throughout the history of research ethics. More recent events, including the unconsented retention of human organs at Alder Hay Hospital, have further demonstrated the failings associated with expecting researchers to voluntarily adhere to codes of practice. The result has been a move to using the law to enforce such matters and to place penalties on those who do not behave in an appropriate and ethical manner. Amongst recent changes to the law are the EU Clinical Trials Directive and the resulting Medicines for Human Use clinical trials regulations, the Data Protection Act of 1998, the Human Tissue Act 2004 and the Mental Capacity Act of 2005. Each has implications for research ethics, informed consent and the ethical review of research. Despite these additions to the law, evidence would suggest that unethical research is still commonplace and that research participants continue to be put at risk. It has been important to consider how we got to where we are today in relation to research ethics, not least because it offers clear evidence of the need for rigorous ethical review by research ethics committees. As has been demonstrated, guidelines code of practice and even the law have been unable to hold unethical research. Research Ethics Committees, or RECs, offer a further means by which researchers can confirm adherence to the required ethical principles, and actual and potential research participants can be protected from possible harm. It is important to remember, however, that RECs do not only exist to police research ethics. All too frequently, researchers see RECs as groups of people whose sole reason for being is to hinder research and to burden researchers with paperwork. RECs are frequently perceived as a hurdle to be jumped, but it would be more appropriate to see them as a resource which researchers should use to help refine the quality of their research. Having set the scene, the remainder of this podcast will describe the application processes. But before making an application for ethical approval, it is important to consider if an application is required at all. It is only necessary to apply for ethical approval for your project if it is research. If your project is an audit or a service evaluation, then ethical approval is not required. There is not time to go into the differences here, but there is a very useful guidance document on the website of the National Research Ethics Service entitled Defining Research. It is important to consider this before making an application that might not be necessary and could waste a lot of time both for you and for the REC. If your project is research, and it involves human participants, then you will be required to make an application for ethical approval. The next decision you need to make is to which type of REC you need to make your application. If your research involves NHS patients or their family members, staff, or NHS property, you will be required to apply for the opinion of an NHS REC. If you are undertaking your research in a social care setting, You should apply to the organisation responsible for that care delivery. For example, in Essex there is a social care ethics committee. If the care provider does not have a REC, then you should apply for ethics approval through the university. If you are not applying to either an NHS REC or a social care committee, then you should also apply for approval through this university. It is important to remember that you will only ever be expected to seek ethical approval from one REC. For example, if you are applying to an NHS committee, you do not also need to apply to a university committee. You are, however, expected to let the university know when you have received approval from a rec outside the university. If you have any doubts about where you should apply for ethical approval, you should seek advice from your supervisor. I will now talk briefly about each of these mechanisms for seeking ethical approval for research. Ethical Review in the NHS is coordinated by the National Research Ethics Service, which is part of the National Patient Safety Agency. There are more than 100 committees throughout the UK, including four in Cambridgeshire and two in Essex. Following the formation of the Central Office for Research Ethics Committees in 2000, and its transformation into the National Research Ethics Service, or NRES, in 2007, the application process was standardised throughout the UK, so there is now a single application form and the ethics committees operate according to a single set of standard operating procedures. You will find a wealth of information about this process, including a number of very useful guidance documents on the NRES website. On this website you will also find a link to the Integrated Research Application System or IRAS website. When you are ready to start preparing your application, you should visit the IRAS website where you will need to register as a researcher. You will then be able to start preparing your application, all of which is done online. Each time you visit the ires website, you'll be asked to log in, and then you can continue working on your application. Next to each question on the application form, you'll notice a green circle with a letter I inside it. If you click on this, you will be provided with further information about the question, and the information the REC needs from you. When you have finished preparing the application, You will need to lock the form, get the necessary signatures, and then submit. As early as possible, you should identify which REC you plan to submit your application to, identify an appropriate submission deadline, and book a slot through the committee's coordinator. You will find details of all the research ethics committees on the NRES website. When you submit your application, including all the accompanying paperwork, the REC coordinator will validate your application and a 60 day clock will start ticking. It is legal requirement that the REC inform you of its decision before the 60 days is up, but it is unusual for the review to take so long. You should note that the 60 day clock stops after the committee has informed you of its provisional opinion and restarts after the committee has received a response from the researcher. This ensures that the clock does not tick past 60 days because the researcher has been slow in responding to the REC's letter. You will be invited to attend the REC meeting at which your application is to be considered and you should always make every effort to attend with your supervisor if at all possible. There is always the danger that the REC might not understand what you are planning to do, so it can help if you are able to attend and answer their questions. You should also note that NHS RECs often specialise in areas of ethical review. For example, some RECs specialise in the review of clinical trials, some specialise in research involving children and some specialise in research that might need to comply with the requirements of the Mental Capacity Act. You will find more information about this on the NRES website, and you should ensure that your application is submitted to the appropriate committee. If you are unsure about this, the rec coordinator will be able to advise you. Finally, if you are given a favourable opinion by an NHS rec, you will be expected to keep the rec informed of the progress of your research, for example, Each year you will be expected to submit an annual report and to provide details of any adverse events that might have occurred during the course of your research. At the end of your research, you will be expected to submit an end of study report and copies of any publications that might result from your research. Applying to an NHS direct can be complex and time consuming, but if you are careful in the preparation of your application and use the support that is available to you You should have no problem navigating your way through the process and coming out at the end with the decision you are looking for. If you are applying to an NHS rec for ethical approval, you will also need to seek governance approval from the R&D department and the NHS organisation in which you are undertaking your research. You should contact the R&D department for more information about this. If you are submitting an application to a social care committee, you should seek information from them about what they require from you each social care organisation will have its own processes and probably its own application form. There will also be a number of such organisations that do not have an ethics committee and in these circumstances you should seek ethical approval from a university committee. You should seek advice from your supervisor and from the individual responsible for research within the organisation. Please remember that if an organisation does not have an ethics committee, It does not mean that you do not need to get ethics approval. If you need to apply for ethics approval through the university, you should visit the ethics pages on the Research, Development and Commercial Services pages of the university website. Here you will find information about the processes, guidance documents and the application form. At Anglia Ruskin University there are two types of ethics committee. Ethics review within the university is coordinated by the Research Ethics subcommittee and within each faculty there is a Faculty Research Ethics Panel, or FREP. In most instances, you will need to submit your application to the FREP coordinator, who will also be able to advise about submission deadlines and meeting dates. In the Faculty of Health and Social Care, the FREP meets every month, and you will normally be advised of their decision soon afterwards. For some types of research, including research involving particularly vulnerable groups, you will need to submit your application to the Research Ethics Subcommittee, and you will find details of submission deadlines on the RDCS website. Unlike NHS Rex, you will not be able to attend either of the university committees, but you will be allocated a sponsor. This sponsor will be a member of the committee's role it is to lead on the review of your application. If there is anything that is not clear in your application, or if any of the documents need revising, They will contact you before the meeting to try and ensure that a decision can be reached during the meeting. After the meeting, the sponsor will help you finalise any revisions before approving your application. For further advice about ethics review within the university, you should contact the FREP administrator or any member of the FREP and they will be pleased to advise. You should treat ethical review as an important part of your project preparing an application form and the accompanying documents can help you to refine your project into one that is ethical, scientifically rigorous and worthwhile. I hope you have found this podcast useful. It has only been possible to touch on some of the key issues, but there is a wealth of advice and guidance out there for you to use when you are considering the ethics associated with your project and the need for ethical review.